For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Can you tell us a little about about that? We're just going to start recording, kind of. We've been doing it more organically lately, so. Sure, yeah. Um, about the Esotericon. Yeah, yeah. So it was the their inaugural event out there, and uh, it was a Masonic event. Originally, it was going to be tiled, but uh, due to some issues with some Prince Hall brethren wanting to come, and uh, a couple of women wanted to come. Uh, so they lifted the tiling and made it open, which was a pretty unique situation <clears throat> because the talk was it wasn't necessarily about the history or ritual of Freemasonry. It was more focused on uh, the esoterica that surrounds uh, certain parts of Freemasonry. So there was a lot of um, talk on Kabbalah, on um, uh, Pico Mirandola and Roisland and that whole Florentine 14th century academy. Uh, I gave a talk on uh, on my book, of course, and um, uh, it was pretty great. Yeah, it was very well received, and uh, it was a sold out crowd. And uh, I think they're already making plans for next year. So, 
yeah, pretty fun. I had a blast. Was there documentation of the talks, or is there transcripts that are going to be available at all? Um, there may be. I know there were some uh, pictures taken, but I don't think uh, any of the talks were filmed. On the other hand, there was a film crew there. Uh, I, I wasn't familiar with them, so forgive me if I pronounce it wrong. I think it was uh, Roadmaps to Freemasonry or Roads to Freemasonry, something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I was interviewing authors. So there was documentation, but uh, whether the talks were documented, I can't say for certain. I didn't see a camera. Was your presentation based around your, your work in this book, Alchemically Stoned? It was. It was uh, based around more the new material that's coming out in the second edition. Um, so the first edition just kind of, uh, you know, it kind of documents the history around um, the problem at hand, which is uh, just the acacia symbol in Freemasonry, how it got there, why it's there. Um, but it wasn't until after the book was published that I came upon further information that kind of uh, demonstrated that this wasn't uh, that the use of acacia masonry as an entheogenic compound wasn't an isolated incident and was actually uh, likely there since its addition to the master mason degree in and around the 17 uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, somewhere around there. Um, so that's, the talk was essentially on how uh, how the acacia symbol got in masonry. So my first question is, what kind of inspired you to write this book about the connection, a possible connection between these entheogenic drugs and things that are spoken about in Freemasonry? Uh, well, my inspiration was from my use of, of those drugs, uh, to be blunt, uh, you know, I, yeah. I was uh, raised in the South where, uh, as you know, um, psychedelic mushrooms are kind of uh, an afterthought because they grow in every grain-fed cow field, you know, south of Tennessee. So, um, and I think even further north of Tennessee in some cases, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that was uh, always a part of my experience growing up and you know, my brother and I were one of the first things we learned how to do was pick mushrooms, you know, natural things, outdoors things. And, uh, you know, so our experience was experiences with them were kind of um, naive and just kids, uh, you know, playing with fire, so to speak. But uh, we both ended off kind of in the deep end and uh, dealing with territory that, you know, we didn't have a frame framework or ref reference for through religion or our culture or, or anything. Uh, it wasn't until years later that we kind of started looking into mystical states like uh, Samadhi, Dharana, Dhyana, Yoga, you know, different things like that, that we started to find parallels to, to some of the things we were experiencing on, on psilocybin. Um, and it was one particularly intense experience later on that led me to say, okay, I'm going to set this stuff aside and kind of pursue more traditional means of initiation so that maybe I can have some kind of guidance yeah. for this territory. Cause I didn't really know what I was doing. <clears throat> I don't, I don't think anybody does even, you know, purported masters of this stuff. It's, it's, uh, 
you know, a true master of this stuff is a, is a absolute master of, of the psyche of the self. And it's a, without some kind of frame of reference, it's very difficult to navigate. So yeah, I went off in search of kind of more traditional avenues of, of initiation and uh, Freemasonry. Well, first, you know, I'd kind of put my hand in every, every esoteric cookie jar out there before I became a Mason. I, I was, uh, uh, I did the golden bond thing for a while. You know, I did the uh, AA Crowley, Selling a thing for a number of years, which I thought was very, you know, very productive, very productive system, it has its own downfalls, like anything. But uh, when I finally found Freemasonry, I felt like uh, it was the first organization that, uh, while like these other organizations, did have um, high aspirations, did have its head in the cloud, so to speak, it also had its feet on the ground. And that was kind of something that I thought. A lot of these other organiza- organizations were missing um, was a firm foundation in practicality, you know. And um, Masonry kind of brought everything back down to uh, to earth for me. So it was very much a a surprise to become a Mason and and get in the lodge and and take my third degree and see this uh, very mystical application of the acacia symbol. Uh, acacia being a source, the most powerful, potent source of DMT uh, available in nature. Um, you know, in addition to mushrooms, I had also, you know, experimented with with uh, DMT. You know, coming up on on McKenna lectures and such. So, uh, so yeah, I felt like I'd come back full circle. And when I first started investigating it, I kind of thought, you know, this is just me. Um, projecting there's no way this is here for entheogenic reasons uh and it wasn't until uh i I read cagliostro's ritual his ritual for his egyptian right that i realized that there were freemasons using this stuff uh for initiatory purposes um in an entheogenic context so right yeah i said why not i'll write the book so it, it all makes a lot of sense because there's been so much, um, since the psychedelic revolution, There's there's been so much studying of uh, ancient religion and the ancient mystery schools. And if Freemasonry is a repository for some of this older, these older traditions, and it, it would make sense that what they're finding in the ancient mystery schools, you would be able to find as well. Yeah, I agree. And Freemasonry does purport to be a sort of repository of of the ancient mysteries. And, you know, my research is very much in line with that of uh, uh, R. Gordon Lawson and uh, Hoffman and uh, uh, Carl A. P. Ruck in their Road to Eleusis, where, where they kind of scour the Eleusinian mysteries for, right. you know, what could possibly be the solution for this experience induced in, you know, thousands upon thousands of people annually consistently. Um, so, you know, they really kind of cut this, this kind of research, this territory of, of trying to look into this, into ancient mysteries and say, you know, maybe there's an entheogenic solution here. And then you had, you know, later on Carl Ruck paired up with, uh, Clark Heinrich who wrote, um, magic mushrooms and religion and alchemy where he did the same thing kind of extended this research into those territories of alchemy and 
you know, it was really that kind of stuff that validated uh, for me um, my own research that said, you know, this is it's worth investigating in this context, uh, especially with Masonry's claim that it is a repository of those same mysteries. So, you know, whether or not, and I point this out in, in the book, you know, in cases other than Acacia and DNT, which we know was used entheogenically, there are symbols that point to other entheogenic compounds that uh, I'm certain weren't used, um, but because they were borrowed by masonry from these traditions, there's uh, naturally some crossover where symbolism pointing to uh, entheogenic uh, compounds and rituals pop up in Masonic ritual where it's not being used in that context at all. So. Well, let's uh, let's start with Acacia then and why that has so much significance and where you first encountered it on, on your journey. Well, my first encounter with Acacia was with um, the Mosa Hostilis Root Park, which is what most people um, back in the 90s and early 2000s were using to uh, produce DMT organically. Um, and Mimosa hostilis is actually a, a reclassification of Acacia tenuiflora. So it's uh, that that would be my first exposure to Acacia would be um, extracting DMT as a as a young man. But uh, when I became a Mason, where the Acacia shows up is in the the third degree, what's called the Master Mason degree. And it's in this degree where the ritual, so the candidate, the candidate would be, that's the term used for the person going through the initiation ritual, the, the man, the one being made a Master Mason. Um, they are kind of, uh, I don't know, are you familiar with Egyptian, the Egyptian Book of the Dead and this kind of treating of every, dead body as being Osiris going into the underworld. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, so in the Master Mason degree, it's a similar scenario, only the figure is someone called Hiram Abiff instead of Osiris. And the candidate is made to represent him on this journey that's essentially a journey to death and, uh, and symbolic resurrection. Uh, in the ritual, it's actually an interment. But uh, the implication is clearly a uh, kind of a, a raising, which is the actual word that's used. Um, but <clears throat> so where Hiram is buried after he's killed, uh, and co uh, coincidentally, where the candidate uh, is killed and buried is beneath a sprig of acacia. Um, and in the ritual, they're told that this sprig of acacia represents um, our faith in the immortality of the soul, belief in the immortality of the soul being one of the things that um, is required for anyone who wants to be a Freemason in most jurisdictions. <clears throat> so there's this emphasis placed on immortality of the soul, of this uh, uh, something that retains consciousness independent of uh, the mortal frame once it's meets its demise. Um, so when I saw that and uh, heard the explanation for it, you know, I'm automatically thinking, because when my experience with DMT was very much, 
an out of body experience. I, uh, I thought I had died and my soul had gone somewhere else, you know, and I was very experienced with psychedelics uh, and, uh, you know, any other psychedelic I've ever taken, uh, you know, there's always been, you know, some morsel of, of self that could always say, uh, this is the experience of a drug. I took a drug, right. but, um, but my first real breakthrough experience with DMT wasn't like that at all. It was, uh, I was certain, and I wasn't terrified. I, it was okay, but I was convinced I was dead. I mean, I didn't think the DMT had killed me. I wouldn't. I didn't know what had done it, but uh, my certainty was that I was dead. My soul had left, and it was on its way to something else. Um, and uh, you know, whether or not it was, whether or not that's the reality of it, um, you know, in Jungian spirit, I, I like to say it's, it's, it doesn't matter if it's real. What matters is that there's a state of consciousness that uh, is characterized by the, these experiences. Um, yeah. You know, something we can point to, something we can talk about, put our finger on. <laughs> so, well, something that's pretty common, something that's pretty right, common in a lot of right. these psychedelic experiences is this death and rebirth cycle, and then also this kind of uh, unitary consciousness, uh, this feeling of there there being, uh, you know, being part of this. Uh, this unitary consciousness, which is basically a hermetic outlook, too. So you have, you sure, know, two yeah, two of exactly the most right. yeah two two of like the biggest ideas in Western esotericism that are some of the most common experiences and especially high doses of uh, psychedelics. Right, right. This notion and you, you encounter and uh, particularly you know Greco Roman hermeticism, early hermeticism, where uh, you know everything has a signature of a planet everything everything is kind of a fractal of these other planets it's all uh, for example you know ruby uh, dandelion um, are like fractals of mars in a way it's a very kind of um, complex way to view the world it's you know it's kind of uh, set aside as primitive but it's when you look at it as what what what's actually being said it gets very very complex and psychedelic and and yeah i think the psychedelic ex experience really hits hits at and touches on whatever they were saying and, and you know that was young's big big statement that these you know whatever the alchemists are talking about sure there there's something going on in a laboratory but what the real meat of the work is is psychological psychic spiritual you know well, and you say uh, that you really, beyond a doubt, think that you found proof of the, the use of acacia or something similar in, in Cagliostro's Egyptian rites. Can you, can you give some background for people who may not understand uh, what, what that is and kind of who he was? Sure, yeah. Well, Cagliostro was, uh, he was an Italian mystic and healer. He was an alchemist. And he was... Um, imprisoned by the Inquisition for heresy where he died. Uh, but before that, he created what he called the Egyptian Rite of Freemasonry in London. And uh, in this ritual, um, he gives the candidate uh, this red liqueur that he tells him has in it the Philosopher's Stone. And he tells him that this Philosopher's Stone was extracted from the same acacia that he was given 
and master in the master mason degree of ordinary masonry, and that from this acacia has prepared um, these treasures. He specifically uses this word treasures. That uh, um, when consumed, when drank in this red liqueur, uh, he says, will raise your spirits and raise your understanding. Um, so clearly, he's saying that from acacia has produced this stone, and when you drink it or eat it, you know, in this case, drink it because it's dissolved into this red liqueur, that uh, it will raise your consciousness to such a degree that you're going to understand the next portion of the ritual, and the next portion of the ritual being uh, this profoundly psychedelic kind of uh, angelic, the, the candidate sees an angel comes down and uh, and, and the ritual apparently um, someone present saw this angel because if it didn't show up, then the candidate didn't get to go through to the next degree. Uh, that was the determining factor, whether or not they hallucinated this angel present after drinking this, this liquor. Yeah. But um, So yeah, clearly in my mind, clearly an indication that it was being used in a very practical um, entheogenic initiatory context. And like I said, I thought this was an isolated incident um, that, you know, someone like me had become a Freemason and seen this acacia symbol, maybe known that acacia is potent in DMT, and then, you know, to borrow a term from Nietzsche, transvaluated it or appropri maybe appropriated it is a better term, appropriated yeah. it to their own purposes. Um, so that was my hunch. That's what I thought when I, the first edition came out, that was my, uh, um, my thesis, I guess, was that, uh, that this was an isolated incident with people like Cagliostro and, uh, his, uh, colleague in Russia, a man named Pyotr Ivanovich Melisino, who, uh, is another one who created a Masonic rite where they specifically talk about extracting this stone from an acacia plant that when smoked, he calls it a burning coal and, and refers to it as the burning coal from the book of Isaiah. And mm -hmm. if you go look in Isaiah, the burning coal is placed to his lips by an angel. And to me, that's the implication seems to be smoking something, inhaling the fumes from, from this coal. Um, yeah, so where Cagliostro appears to... That was fascinating when you wrote about I that thought in so the book. Too. Yeah. Right, I thought so too, because this is, uh, you know, even the concept of smoking was kind of seen as a fairly new thing. I mean, it had been around for a while, but I don't know who, how, I don't know if it had reached Russia. You know, in France, they had been smoking. Fumar, as they called it, was, a, you know, well-established by that point. But uh, for a Russian, I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. You know enough about the history. <clears throat> as far as a burning stone for people who may not be familiar, um, that is, uh, you you turn when you, when you extract DMT from one of these plants, right? You would then create a crystal. Right. It must a stone, a salt. You know, it's also right. called a salt in these lectures. Um, now, salt is already a loaded alchemical term that you see in a lot of different alchemical texts, but it's it's significant that they even pointed out that way because. If you look at Rick Strassman's book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, 
um, when he got permission to do his research, which was funded by the Scottish Rite, by the way, I should mention, but when he got permission <laughs> yeah. to do it, he, the chemist he contacted couldn't make it. He kept fucking it up, couldn't get it done. And, you know, Strassman uh, asks him, you know, what's the issue? And he tells him, well, how he's making it. And Strassman says, well, you're, you're trying to make a, a base, like a free base. And he says, yeah. And he says, well, that'll never work because it's not a base. It's a salt. You have to make a salt. Um, you know, so I, 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 that was always, you know, kind of significant to me that both Cagliostro and um, Melissino call it a salt in the ritual, and which is exactly what it is. Well, is there also a correlation between that and the Philosopher's Stone of Alchemy? Well, that's what they say. So um, they say that well, in alchemy, the the central problem of alchemy is, uh, you know, most people think it's just to convert base metals into gold, but um, that's a metaphor. Number one, I mean, e- even though the earliest alchemical texts, whether it be Indian, Chinese, you know, Egyptian, are all clearly metallurgy texts on how to tincture metals, certain colors. Um, like if you look at Zosimos. Uh, Shannon Grimes just published a great book on Zosimos um, called Becoming Gold. Uh, but it, it's pretty clear that the earliest alchemical texts are referring to metallurgy. Um, but this eventually entered the realm of metaphor, and you get base metals into gold, and uh, which is a pretty great metaphor. But um, how do you get from base metals into gold? Well, that's the central problem of alchemy, and it involves what's called the Philosopher's Stone. To get the Philosopher's Stone, you have to know what the Prima Materia is. The Prima Materia is never revealed. Even, for example, like in Sigmund Richter's book, um, where he claims, you know, I'm going to reveal this by name. You read the whole book, it doesn't reveal it by name. Nobody ever reveals it by name. So it's pretty unique in masonry that we have have two people revealing it by name. And it's, uh, it's also within the comfortable confines of a secret society where, you know, they might not have thought we'd have read it or heard it. So, uh, you know, in text, they're not writing it down, but behind the closed doors of a Masonic lodge, it appears that, that they were, you know, openly revealing it. Moving on to Ergut. And you talk about the mysteries of Eleusis, the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, there's also some interesting symbology there in Freemasonry with the threshing floor. And uh, there's also a phrase that refers to a waterfall. Right. And right. I thought it was interesting how you kind of put some of this together. Well, the, that's the second portion of the book. Um, and it refers to. Um, This portion of ritual where you're exposed to a sheaf of wheat or grain, just sheaf of grains, and some of the translations say an ear of corn, but the oldest stuff say a sheaf of wheat, Um, suspended beneath a waterfall, which is already kind of a weird imagery. Um, But uh, when I read A Road to Eleusis, um, I, I... I I wasn't a Freemason yet. So when I became a Freemason, lots of things I had read in there that were 
part of the Eleusinian mysteries, part of those rituals, um, popped out at me. And you even see, like in Manly P. Hall or uh, John Yarker, uh, where they even go to great lengths to tie Freemasonry to the Eleusinian mysteries. And it's one of its predecessors, which, you know, they're most certainly right. It's one of the most famous mystery schools that uh, came before Freemasonry. But, um, uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of the symbols, there's a lot of crossover between um, the symbols involved in both. And uh, what really struck me was the sheaf of wheat symbolism. And it didn't really uh, kind of dawn on me the significance of it uh, until I was reading an early Masonic ritual where it said that King Solomon's Temple, which is where all Masonic ritual takes place symbolically in that temple, um, was built upon Ornan's threshing floor. So uh, I kept thinking, threshing floor, what is that? I've read that somewhere. What is a threshing floor, you know? And uh, so I looked into it, and sure enough, you know, uh, King Solomon's Temple was built on this threshing floor where Ornan had seen this angel. And um, so I start digging and trying to figure out where I saw this threshing floor reference. And it finally dawned on me. There's this book by Dan Merker, who is a, a professor out of Canada. He wrote this book called The Mystery of Manna. And it's his uh, attempt to explain certain biblical episodes uh, via ergot, uh, using ergot, solving these problems with ergot. <laughs> so the part that uh, stuck with me that uh, you know I couldn't remember but finally recovered was this what he called the drought ordeal and um it's this episode in the book of numbers where a woman is accused of adultery and she's given this drink this water and the the and it's they're in the tabernacle and the priests scrape up this dust from the floor and put it in this water and tell her that, uh, and they, it's called a cereal offering in there. So we know it's a grain, but, but it's also dust from the floor. And they put it in this cup and tell her to drink it and tell her that if she's guilty, that the Lord will cause her belly to swell up and her side to drop off. And of course, anybody who's familiar with ergot poisoning would immediately recognize this because those, those are the symptoms. Intense gastric disturbances followed by gangrene where the limbs fall off, turn black and fall off. And this is usually accompanied by uh, hallucinations and what they call dancing plagues where people you know, can't stop dancing for days or moving or laughing, you know. Yeah, this St. Anthony's complete fire. Fit. Exactly, right. Wow. So Merker, you know, rightly says this sounds like um, an episode of ergot poisoning. And it's significant because if you, if you eat the ergot straight, like drink it in, straight in this liquid with the powder, uh, that's how you get ergot poisoning. But um, apparently the psychoactive compounds are water-soluble where the toxic ones aren't. So if you did a simple water extraction, um, which is what a pour over is in a coffee house and which is, you know, if there's the only kind of the way I look at it, it's the lowest common denominator of something that is at once a sheaf of wheat and suspended beneath a waterfall. Um, 
as kind of this idea of the water water extraction. And, you know, I, I still to this day, I think there's no way that that was intentionally uh, put in there. It's just, it's just too neat. But, um, but the fact is, you know, most scholars, biblical scholars see uh, the tabernacle as a projection into the past of King Solomon's temple. And even in Masonic ritual, we're told that the King Solomon's temple was an exact reproduction of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So if it was exact, then it would imply that the tabernacle was on a threshing floor too, just like King Solomon's uh, floor. And that was that was Dan Merker's uh, logic as well. So, uh, so yeah, pretty pretty strange stuff. Um, some neat little coincidences. So in addition to first Acacia, then the possible use of ergot, then also you go full circle back to where you started all this with uh, psychedelic mushrooms, and in particular, fly agaric or Amanita muscaria. And you find this right. also within the lore. Um, well, and it's even harder to explain. Um, but when... Are you familiar with Carl Ruck's book? Uh, he wrote with um, Sildron and Hoffman called Mushrooms, Myth, and Mithras. No, but I'm familiar with a lot of the concepts, and, and we re- we both read the book, your book, too, so I know you summarize some of that. Okay, well, um, uh, well it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge argument. I don't know if we have enough time to go through the whole yeah, argument, but I will say that... Um, a number of scholars that in, are investigating Amanita muscari mushrooms, which really began with um, Wasson and extended into uh, uh, Allegro and Ruck and Heinrich, um, a lot of these guys uh, have consistently pointed out this liberty liberty pole motif as being um, possibly emblematical of. Uh, the psychedelic mushroom and they you know you, you'll have to read their research like I said that's why it's a, such a big topic I don't think right. we have time to cover all of it but um, there's, there's a lot of stuff so, about fly agaric for a long time so I think I think a lot of the audience right. probably be exposed to it so well when you in the Scottish Rite and in the York Rite also there are rituals that are based around the Knights Templar and in the Scottish Rite it's called the Knights Kadosh it's the 30th degree and in the York Rite, it's called Knights Templar, or the Commandery um, of the Knights of the Temple, and it's kind of the capstone of um, the York Rite. Well, in both of these, uh, there's heavy emphasis on this Templar scenario, Templar imagery, uh, chivalric imagery, and um, well, particularly in the uh, the Scottish Rite version, Knight Kadosh degree, there's this liberty pole set up in the east, which is this is the image of a Phrygian cap placed on a shepherd's pole. And Mithras, uh, and the rites of Mithras, uh, which is why I brought that book up, is always depicted with this cap on, and he's he's um, very Ruck does a great job. Hoffman and Seldron they do a great job of showing how. The rites of Mithras were centered around entheogenic dinners. These, this like kind of a, a sequence of entheogenic dinners that happened in a, in a scenario of seven grades. But uh, Mithras is always depicted with this Phrygian cap, and he's called a shepherd of men, much like Jesus is called a shepherd shepherd of men. 
Um, so this shepherd, this Phrygian cap is placed upon a shepherd's crook. And you see this in the 30th degree. And it's placed in the east with uh, no real explanation. Um, and al- already, you know, coming from a background in psychedelics, I saw that. And while I've never really kind of bought into the the uh, fungal explanation for it, m- you know, my ears still perked up, so to speak. And, um, you know, later in both of these rituals, and I, I don't mind saying this because it's in the, you can find this printed anywhere. Um, you know, I'm not breaking any obligation saying it. Um, but in both of them, there is the uh, motif of drinking from a skull cup. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how familiar the audience might be with um, with the ancient Soma rites and with uh, Tibetan Buddhism and uh, with Kapalas and, you know, this idea of drinking Amrita or Soma from, from a skull cup, from a Kapala. And uh, it, the reason, you know, what was so heavy about this for me was uh, the grail motif, the holy grail motif has always fascinated me. Um, but when you look at this idea of the in the holy grail, the research is always wrapped up with the Knights Templar. And that comes from the early grail romances where Wolf, Wolfram von Eschenbach calls the grail knights Templars. And that was, I think, in the 1300s, in the 14th century. So it goes way back, this this notion of them going together. But when the Templars were rounded up, no cup was ever found of any significance. Um, you know, and the most interesting thing is, to this day, is this idea of this Baphomet. And uh, when it, when asked what Baphomet is, uh, you know, more than one Templar said it was a, a head, a severed head. And there was there was even a head recovered. Um, that had a label on it, head 58M, which, uh, you know, would indicate that there were more than one. But uh, when I looked at Von Hammer Pergstahl's uh, research where he said that he thought Baphomet wasn't an idol, but was a ritual, an Ophite Gnostic ritual, um, there was a combination of two words, Baphe, Matisse, um, the baptism of wisdom. And... So, you know, my wheels are already turning, trying to make sense of this. And, you know, back to this idea of a lowest common denominator, what's the lowest common denominator of a severed head and a sacred cup, Uh, a skull cup? And, you know, here I was, you know, going through that Templar ceremony, drinking from the skull cup and, and for the first time thinking, you know, all of a sudden, Holy Grail, Baphomet, head, cup, you know, it kind of... Yeah, coalesced into this aha moment, and um, so yeah, I started looking even further, and you know, no one really knows uh, where this Templar ritual came from, and this drinking from the skull cup. Uh, the furthest I've been able to trace it back is this Jesuit chapter of Claremont, uh, which is so, you know, hidden in the shadows. I can't really investigate it uh, any further presently, but. Um, but yeah, you know, bottom line, uh, it's just loaded with uh, fungal symbolism that appears to have come from, um, you know, the, the, what I think is this, uh, that probably when the Templars encountered uh, Mithraic worship in the East and, uh, uh, you know, the, and the Roman so- soldiers encountered the same thing and brought it back as the rites of Mithras, which became kind of this 
secret society limited to soldiers and kings. But uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of a continuity there that Mm -hmm. I've still not been able to really articulate, but I'm still researching it. So, And you also find possible reference to these mushrooms in the Rosicrucian mythos. Oh, definitely. Now that's, that's a definite one. So with the Templar mythos, it's a, it's speculative, but with the Rosicrucian mythos, it's not. So there's a, in the Rosicrucian idea comes from the publication of what are called the Rosicrucian manifestos in the um, 1600s. I can't remember the exact date, 1614, 1615, something like that. But Is this um, like the alchemical wedding and all that kind of stuff like that. That was, that was the third one. The first one was the, uh, the fame of the Fama con- Fama, the Fama, which means the fame, and the, the second was the Confessio, which means the confession. Um, but they were kind of straightforward tales of this allegorical figure, Frater C.R., Frater R.C., who's later called Christian Rosenkreutz or uh, Rose Cross. Um, and yeah, by the third one, what you really have is a, an alchemical text, um, very you know, dream, dreamlike stream of consciousness imagery, very surreal, you know, classic, um, um, uh, 16th century, 17th century alchemical text kind of stuff. But the first two are what really spawned, you know, what a lot of people like Francis Yates called the Rosicrucian Fuhrer. Uh, but Tobias Churton, he, he really didn't think it was a fear. He thought it was kind of, um, I think it was Churton who said that he thought it was, uh, you know, kind of a more limited, small explosion of interest. But uh, so the first Rosicrucian order to surface after the publication of these manifestos was a German society called Orden des Gold und Rosenkruzer, founded by Hermann Fichtold in the 1750s. And, uh, Frater UD, um, I think it was, you know, he proposed that the idea for this order came out of Sigmund Richter's 1710 alchemical manuscript called The True and Perfect Preparation. And that's the one I mentioned earlier where he purported he was going to reveal the Prima Materia by name. Uh, and he does not. And But he does pr- provide a perfect description of an Amanita muscaria mushroom. And he says that, uh, that this mushroom, well, excuse me, he doesn't call it a mushroom. He says that it's a spirit. He said the spirit must be gathered when it is fruitful. And he says that it only is found on the roots of certain trees and it must be collected after the rain falls and that its number is increased by thunder and lightning. There's nothing in nature that that it satisfies all of this except for uh, a mycorrhizal mushroom. Mycorrhizal mushrooms are mushrooms that can only grow and subsist upon the root systems of certain trees. And he clearly says it's a, it has to be gathered when it's fruitful, and that's what they are. They're technically called fruiting bodies of uh, of a mycelial network. And in this case, the network is... Um, codependent, uh, symbiotic with uh, 
the root systems of, of certain trees and that it is to be collected after the rainy seasons, again, consistent with mushroom production. And then he goes on to say that it, their number is increased by thunder and lightning. And this is something that Wasson found in literature from all over the world about mushrooms was that there was this kind of folklore idea that where lightning struck mushrooms would grow. And it wasn't until I think 2000, 2016 um, national geographic issued an article saying that uh, Japanese scientists had discovered that it was absolutely true that where lightning struck the ground, mushrooms mm. multiplied uh, so that little bit of folklore is now you know scientific fact uh, huh. so this this book where you know the prima materia in this case this mushroom is uh, is described in uncanny detail uh, went on to influence the formation of a masonic rosicrucian order that in turn influenced the formation of uh SRIA, what's called Sakiatis Rosicruciana in Anglia. And it was this organization that went on to give birth to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. There's also the symbology to use also for the fly agaric or the mushroom uh, on the golden fleece. And the phoenix are also two other symbols. Right. All that basically all comes from, from Clark's book. Um, Clark is some kind of a a genius when it comes to uh, uh, finding um, Amanita symbolism, uh, you know, and a lot of authors in his position uh, are clearly reaching, but uh, in my opinion, Clark has his feet, you know, very firmly planted on the ground and, hmm. and uh, his readings of, of a lot of this is just uncanny. But as far as the golden fleece, um, so with Amanita muscaria, you know, it's got this very red and white, uh, a famously red and white appearance. Well, the red is very, its appearance is almost um, rubbery, metallic, but the white portion that forms on top looks like nothing so much as wool. And uh, it... Uh, what it is, it's the remnants of what's called the, the universal veil that once covered the whole mushrooms. In their, in their embryonic state, they're kind of this egg-shaped mass that's surrounded by this kind of spiky, pointy, white, foam, almost meringue-looking material. And as the, the mushroom, the peleus, the cap, as it expands and breaks away from the stipe, from, the, from its stem, the, the uh, universal veil, you know, cracks and, and kind of recedes into these uh, little tufts of uh, it, it, what you can only describe as woolly fragments. It's, uh, so the appearance very much looks like a bleeding lamb uh, when it's fresh, but when it's been dried, that rubbery redness takes on a very golden hue, and those white specks, uh, they kind of harden and condense into um, further yellowish uh, little golden specks if they don't fall off altogether. But it leaves a, um, 
a shining, you know, fired metallic looking object once it's thoroughly dried. Uh, and, and, and Heinrich, Clark Heinrich relates this to the Golden Fleece, and that's not the only uh, example. I mean, there are, there are a number. If you check out um, Antoine Favre's book on alchemy and the Golden Fleece, he never makes the leap to tie it to uh, mushrooms, but the number of references he pulls out that uh, kind of back up this argument are, are staggering in that book. And uh, yeah, I wish we had more time because I could talk about this all day, but um, but yeah, it's uh, that basically the idea comes from uh, from Clark's Clark's research. Question for you: Oh, and the Phoenix. To... You asked about the yeah, Phoenix. Yeah, but the Phoenix. To... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Phoenix is very interesting because you know the the, the myth of the Phoenix is that there's this bird that um, combusts in its nest, reduces to ashes, and then uh, a worm remains, and this worm. Uh, turns into the next phoenix, and the cycle repeats. And in several alchemical texts, you'll see uh, this phoenix in its nest, but tied to it with chains, trying to fly away. You know, its wings out, but it's chained to this nest. And uh, you know, he he gives a number of images. He provides uh, photos of mushrooms where you can see the gills, what's called the lamellae. Um, under the cap, once it's upturned, resemble nothing so much as a bird in flight with its wings out. And what's interesting is when when the cap upturns this way, it's for the process of sporulation, when it drops the spores from those gills. And the spores of an Amanita muscaria are ashy white gray. So when they fall, of course, you got to remember it's mycorrhizal. It only grows on the roots of certain trees. One of those trees, the most famous being the pine tree. Uh, so naturally, it's forming in pine needles. And because of its round shape, naturally forms this nest appearance in the needles where it grows. So when those spores fall, it fills this thing with white, ashy remnants. And the mushroom, of course, decays and dies and, and rots and disappears. But before that happens, as any mushroom forager knows, uh, your number one enemy is worms, maggots. Uh, any mushroom you pick, I don't care if it's psilocybin or amanita mushrooms, um, if they're outdoors, you know, worms are a major issue. So, you know, this myth of, of a bird that, you know, is in flight but can't leave its nest and uh, burns up in, in its redness and leaves behind a, a, a ground covering of ashes that, uh, in which is found a worm or worms. Uh, and then from that grows another mushroom from those spores, from, uh, from that new mycelial network formed from that sporulations. Yeah, pretty, pretty nice, convenient description. Yeah, phoenix rising from the ashes. Um, right. All this... All this kind of coded language, all this, all these kind of traditions. I mean, were these ways for initiates to read this stuff, and then they would figure out, oh, hey, this is what you have to do to produce this. Was that kind of the point of some of this in your idea about well, all this? You know, in an in an initiatory context, this stuff wasn't always revealed. 
would yeah. have been revealed. You know, they'd have had the experience and never known how it was induced. And you know, yeah, uh, you make that like point about the Eleusinian. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. They uh, they weren't supposed to know uh, what the Kikion beverage was, and uh, the one person who uh, I can't remember who it was. Uh, it's discussed in Wasson Ruck and uh, Hoffman's book Road to Eleusis, but one. One initiate um, was raided, basically, uh, for sharing the Kikion with other people who weren't members of of, uh, of the Rite, of the Mysteries of Eleusis. And they knew that he had indeed shared it because the evidence was plainly stated that he still had the barley groats in his beard. And, you know, barley being, uh, you know, one of the primary sources for... Uh, uh, ergot for uh, Cliviceps purpurea. Well, yeah, all this stuff is real fascinating, and I guess a, a lot of this centers around um, the the quest for immortality, not necessarily being that a sacrament can give you physical immortality, but that these sacraments um, allow you to recognize your own immortality, which is one of the most common themes in the psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. And that was that was. Um, you know, in the book, I use a quote from Joseph Campbell, who wrote "You're with a Thousand Faces," uh, yeah, where he says yeah. that you know the belief in physical immortality proceeds from a mis- or misunderstanding of the traditional teaching. But he goes on to use really uh, suggestive language. He says that uh, that the real meaning is to enlarge in the pupil of the eye, so that the attendant personality with its ego is no longer obstructs the view and then immortality is perceived as present fact you know so when i read this this is written i think he wrote that in the 50s 1956 i think was when that book was published um i'm thinking that sounds like lsd you know dilation of pupils and this you know experience of immortality and uh so i got to researching that and found out that sure enough Joseph Campbell was a self-proclaimed deadhead. He actually gave lectures with the Grateful Dead on huh. uh, on mm. their music as a revival of the Dionysian mysteries. You can actually Google <laughs> that and find the the uh, uh, the poster for it. Um, and so I started digging even deeper. And of course, Stanislav Grof, who was the famous LSD Czech- Czechoslovakian LSD uh, psychotherapist. Uh, Campbell wrote a blurb for it, saying that uh, what he achieved with LSD could have never been achieved by Freud or Jung with psychoanalysis alone. And, uh, you know, clearly advocating the benefits of LSD in that kind of setting. So, so yeah, Campbell turned out to be a real, uh, for lack of a better word, hip dude. Right. <laughs> but what do you think about, I mean, we've got, you know, some decriminalization of of mushrooms going on in some municipalities now. What, what do you think about mm-hmm. the future for the, do you think there's going to be a, a finally this kind of medical or this opening up of the use of psychedelic drugs? And do you think that's entirely positive or do you think um, maybe, you know, there is some sacramentalization for a reason and maybe these things are, are, are special. And some of that, I think it's gets lost in some of the drug culture too. Right. Well, you know, in a world where nothing is sacred, there you go. Um, 
legality kind of protects the sanctity of certain things, illegality. But that being said, there's nothing more sacred than our freedom, than our liberty. And I've been saying this since day one with medical marijuana, recreational marijuana. I think it should all just be decriminalized, hands off. It's nature. You know, don't try to market it. Don't try to sell it to me. Don't try to uh, package it in any way. Just uh, let man commune with nature how he pleases. Uh, you and if know, it's spiritual, I, I, I feel, that's freedom of religion also. If right. It's used in a spiritual context. And, so, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, my thing is I'm all for spiritual use, um, but I also think that's not the whole bucket. You know, uh, that shit makes you laugh for a reason. <laughs> you, you know, there's a, there's a definite recreational element to it and uh, to limit it to, to, um, sacramental use and religions is to, to com- I think, to miss a, a very potent, valid side of it, um, which is just joy, to induce joy. And of course, that's, you know, it's arguable that that is spiritual, but not everybody yeah. who wants that experience wants to be wrapped up with a spiritual tradition either. Do you know True. what I mean? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I, you know, as far as it being decriminalized, I'm all for it. I think what's going on with psilocybin in Denver and with uh, entheogenic substances in Oakland, you know, this is exactly what I thought I would never see. So the fact that I'm seeing it has completely just reinvigorated my uh, my faith in uh, the validity of this stuff, uh, of this of these experiences, you know, and it's also kind of I don't know. It's kind of re- rekindled my faith in, uh, in uh, I don't want to say politics, but just in, in the idea <laughs> that I, I might be able to make a change, you know. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I see changes happening on this kind of ground level. You know, it, it makes you hopeful. And, uh, yeah, I love it. I think there's been a much more of an acceptance of this stuff now than there was in the past. I think it's becoming more and more an accepted aspect of normal life. And especially now when you have like the Johns Hopkins study of about uh, psilocybin right. and LSD, it's, and, and, and I think it really probably, probably all this really starts with Strassman and his work back in the nineties, but it's becoming so much more acceptable. And I think too, there's been also this acceptance more of like the occult and people getting more interested in that. And, these different kind of traditions along. Right. So it's interesting that that's happening as this interest in the psychedelic experience has grown mm-hmm. as well. We're seeing a lot of boundary disillusion, you know, which is one of the primary experiences of entheogens is the disillusion of boundaries. But, uh, but I think that's what's happening. We're seeing that. And, you know, no matter how much people want borders up and want to put borders in place, walls in place, uh, you know, the boundaries are going to be dissolved eventually. And if they don't, we, they'll collapse on us. It's just, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah. And I, I really feel like what's going on with this, like you said earlier, this psychedelic revolution, uh, you know, has a lot to do with this notion of dissolving boundaries. And um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm sure we're going to see some horror stories and some propaganda and uh, a lot of really mm-hmm. negative shit before it gets normal. But uh, but we're on the right track. I really I really believe that. 
how's the book been received by fellow Freemasons? Well, you know, when I first published, I was really uh, expecting a lot of negative feedback, a lot of backlash, and I've gotten a lot, but, you know, overwhelmingly uh, positive, much more positive than negative. Uh, you know, for example, it, it's it's correcting itself in a way. I was um, invited to speak on my book in Colorado a couple of years ago and was actually banned. Uh, the lodge that wanted to bring me um, had the Grand Lodge step in and, and banned me from speaking in that state really? on this topic. Huh. Right. And, uh, you know, that kind of hit me at a, at a low level because – uh, you know, I'm a Mason. I, I, should, I should be welcome anywhere Masons are. But uh, uh, I did get the opportunity to speak there a couple of months ago, and um, it was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, you know, it's it's clear that um, what's the word I want that the, the zeitgeist is changing. The paradigm is changing, shifting. Right. You know. And just this small amount of time from, from 2015 to, to 2019 in four years, we're seeing a paradigm shift to where I actually, you know, was invited back and spoke and it went great. And, uh, yeah, just in four years. So it's, uh, I think it's really positive. And, you know, since the second edition is coming out and a lot of people, um, have heard my lectures, read my articles, uh, you know, I think in the beginning, a lot of Masons were afraid that I was trying to say that uh, we need to bring DMT back to Masonry or that, you know, I'm not sure what they thought my argument was, but I think most of them were huh. just basically terrified of whatever I was going to say because it involved drugs, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, now that we've gotten this far down the line from publication and people understand that what I'm talking about is history, uh, these are things that really happened. Uh, there's no other model to explain their occurrence other than this. And uh, we should be mature enough to discuss it. And finally, we're at a time where changes are happening in our country where I think people are ready to discuss it. So, I, you know, I think this is the not just the right time, but maybe the only time, you know, that, that my book could have come out and, and been received at all, if that makes sense. I, I think for some of these these guys, maybe in the older generation, and this is this is probably true. I mean, this is true outside the lodge, and I'm sure it's true inside the lodge, where that they may have this kind of fear of it. But you looking at it from a historical point of view, of saying like, "Hey, look, you know, the ancients and the people that founded this tradition, they did not view these drugs in the same way. They don't have the same stigma." that right. to th to those people that we have to them now. Right. That's a huge point. And that's one point that Jamie Paul Lamb, um, who wrote Myth, Magic, and Masonry, that's a point he makes in the uh, forward to the second edition of my book. He really stresses that, you know, for these people, that experience would have been viewed in terms of um, Enochian visions of, 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 John of Patmos kind of revelation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, of, uh, of Ezekiel proportions kind of, uh, you know, these would have been, 
their faith would have overshadowed any doubt. And if this was a hallucination, you know, it's the, the, the culture, uh, the culture wherein it was taking place wasn't a scientific culture. It was very much in its infancy. Uh, so yeah, that's an excellent point that, uh, you know, they had no real notion, not only of psychedelics, of course, they, but they wouldn't have had even a notion of addictive drugs. You know, they did know about hallucinogens, um, but, uh, you know, it was still a very new idea. Um, you saw that, you see that with uh, Robert Boyle, who and the Royal Society issued uh, what's called his wish list where he gave a list of items he wanted to acquire for the Royal Society to investigate. And uh, among that list is plainly stated hallucinogenic drugs. Um, you know, huh. so it was something known to uh, the scientific community, but for those who were more of the mystical inclination, um, alchemists who weren't kind of, uh, proto Isaac Newton's, you know, right. I think their interpretation of that that experience would have been much more uh, religious and spiritual than uh, neurochemical. Hmm. Well, this has been totally fascinating. If you can give people a uh, kind of let them know what's next for you and uh, how they can get all of your uh, how they can check out your book and and see your write, other writings, any contact info or websites or anything like that. Absolutely. Um, the best way to keep up with what's going on, where I'm going to speak, um, interviews, reviews, that kind of thing, uh, is on my Facebook presence. You can find that at uh, Alchemically Stoned by P.D. Newman. That's the title of the page. Uh, you can get my book from Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's best for me if you get it from my publisher, which is thelaudablepursuit.com. Uh, and the, yeah, the second edition, uh, it was submitted last month. We looked for it to, uh, be published, um, the fall equinox. <laughs> so cool. just a few months. And, uh, I also have a second book that will be coming out, uh, much more Masonic, you know, it's, there are no, references to entheogens. This is more a reflection of my time as the director of education at uh, officer of education at our Tupelo Lodge in uh, Mississippi. But yeah, so that'll be out probably by the spring equinox of next year. And aside from that, I've got uh, all the talks. I got several talks coming up this year. I'll be at, uh, I've been invited to speak at Ozora festival in Hungary. Hopefully I can make that if I can't, um, I'll be there next year, but all of my uh, upcoming speaking engagements can be seen on my Facebook page. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been a very fascinating interview. Um, we're going to close this section out. Uh, stay on the line with us, PD. We're going we're gonna to be back, and uh, we will be right back on Normal, guys. Sounds great. Thanks. All right, guys. we got a new sponsor that we're going to talk about called Blinkist and they are this new company that is taking books and summarizing them so like a cliff notes yeah kind of like a cliff notes except it's like a 16 minute summary so 
basically you know it's it can be kind of hard find hard to find the time to sit down and learn a little bit more when you're out on the go and you're listening to podcasts like ours and it's uh, not easy when you get on social media and it's so addictive time consuming so you might think you don't have the time to read a book or to develop yourself in any kind of substantial way so this is an app that we highly recommend and it's called Blinkist as I mentioned before Blinkist is for busy people like like you guys that are out there listening to the show that want to get the main point of the book quickly without reading the entire book so with an audio feature Blinkist also makes it easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go which uh, eight and eight million people are now using Blinkist and it has a massive and growing library from self-help business health to history books so that's very important to me history I checked that out today there's a lot of history books on there um, one of which uh, looks interesting called the Congo from Leopold to Kabila or Kabila the uh, the new ruler of the Congo if you guys are any um, familiar with that you can go on there in less than 15 minutes and you can get on there and fast track your path to a more intelligent informed healthy you and one of the books, some of the books they've got are some of the stuff that we've talked about on the show. There's stuff like self-improvement and uh, new thought, like how to make people like you in 90 seconds or less All right. by Nicholas Boothman or the subtle art of not giving an F by Mark Manson. So those, those sound a little bit interesting. So if you want to check those out, those are there as well. So what they're doing right now, guys, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for the Conspiranormal audience. So go to Blinkist.com slash Conspiranormal to start your free seven-day trial. And that's Blinkist. That's spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Conspiranormal. And Conspiranormal, of course, is C-O-N-S-P-I-R-I-N-O-R-M-A-L. So check them out today, guys. And it also helps us out a lot. Thanks. And now... To the show. We are back. Are we? Yes. Okay. That's good. Because, you know, we got a little alchemically stoned. I just wanted to make sure that uh, that we re- really were back on that one. Yeah, time was dilated for a little bit. That was just eight hours. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I hate it when that happens. I thought I was seeing like the 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 uh, color skate from like two thousand one. It's not like that, quite. Man. Okay. I want to know, but uh, no, you wouldn't know. You, you would have no idea of such thing. Okay, well, that was P.D. Newman. Um, very successful interview. I was pretty impressed. Now, this was a guest. This was a guest that you had suggested, and you actually booked. Yeah, yeah, we had a. How to track him down. Been doing more of that lately, but this book is absolutely fascinating. And I actually found out about him through a couple of his uh, articles he had online about other things, about P.B. Randolph in mm-hmm. the South and in Nashville in particular, mm-hmm. and about a, a Martinist uh, female commune in East Tennessee. So those you, are pretty fascinating you're articles. You're going to have too. to explain to me what Martinist is. Uh, I really can't right now. <laughs> Oh, we'll you, do that later. Are you sworn to secrecy? No, no, no. I just I don't I don't have enough of a grasp to really uh, recall it at random here. Oh, okay. I have right. to visit the Wikipedia or something. 
Oh, I mean, okay. Well, let's see, because he, he mentioned that in our brief little, like, offline discussion. Yeah, so I guess I he's like, a what Martinist is, also. Was, yeah. What is Martinist? Um, there's, there's so many different uh, types of groups. Yeah, I found it extremely interesting as well. Um, some of it, I thought to myself, well, knowing that the ancients and, like, you know, shamans on in a very basic level in the tribal system use this stuff it didn't seem to me too surprising that those traditions would have traveled through time yeah to us um maybe in a way that is kind of clouded or a way that is like just like in code um or even like he said sometimes he doesn't think these were uh he doesn't think that some of it was even ever actively um practiced in the lodge but right. the symbolism is left over and the symbolism has maybe unique cultural connotations that even the freemasons who uh you know kind of adopted the symbolism were completely aware of mm-hmm. yeah it comes from these different ideas and um that have been just passed down from century to century uh there was a, like a lot of the stuff like the Eleusinian mysteries. I really knew nothing about that. Well, see, there was a whole lot of that, like in the, cause I'm really a, I'm really a product of a lot of the, the turn of the century, psychedelic cyber culture stuff. And, and that uh-huh. was the ergot and being the, the Eleusinian mysteries and the, uh, Amanita muscaria, fly agaric mushroom. You know, I mean, I remember hearing, Terrence McKenna on coast to coast with Art Bell way back in the day. And it was, it was pretty, it was pretty popular on the World Wide web. Yeah. Um, I found this interesting. It's something I didn't even think about when he's talking about the, uh, the acacia, I guess that's the leaf. Yeah. I guess it's a, it's a species. There's a lot of different ones, but yes. a lot of them have more DMT. So the Ark of the Covenant was constructed using acacia wood which he points out in this. And there's mythologies of the cross also. Right. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, it's just everywhere. It's really yeah. compelling. I, I didn't expect, I didn't expect there, to, honestly, I did not expect there to be, I was aware of some of the stuff, but I did not expect there to be that much. I mean, it's, there's a whole lot. So this part was particularly interesting. We, 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 we kind of covered this, but I'm going to read this from the book, if you don't mind. Um, so, what other than DMT could the treasures created from acacia have been? Of course, cubical stone is language which Melusino, which is the Russian, the founder of the Russian rite that he spoke about, has obviously borrowed from Masonic ritual, which refers to the perfect ashlar. But here he has clearly identified this ashlar with a salt that has been alchemically produced from acacia. And indeed, DMT is just that. It's not a base, it's a salt. The scriptural allusion in the above excerpt refers to a biblical episode wherein a burning coal of an unspecified substance is placed upon Isaiah's, Isaiah's lips by an angel, seemingly for him to inhale its fumes. That is, for him to smoke it, smoking being one of the preferred modes by which DMT is normally consumed. Lo, said the angel, this burning coal hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. That's uh, from Isaiah 6. And Isaiah smoking DMT crystal, man. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I asked a question to P.D. Newman about how, how do the Freemasons have taken this? How have they handled it? And he said that, you know, he got a little bit of flack over it, but uh, they've, they've handled it pretty well. Now, if you, if you try to go in and talk about, I don't know, I don't know necessarily how somebody of the Jewish faith would handle it, but I know, like, people of Christianity, oh, they'd yeah. have a hard time with that. Well, and that's something that, uh, you know, since the, the psychedelic revolution in the 60s, there's been a lot of speculation about that. You know? mm-hmm. And Strassman, uh, one of his uh, latest works, he's written about how the biblical prophets have, were basically, he says that, you know, they were taking some kind of hallucinogens. Yeah, I mean, there's obvious sacraments, and then there's parallels to actual psychedelic uh, sacraments that we understand, and then then after the sacraments, there is usually these visions. So, I mean, to me, it's just real, real obvious that there's got to be some kind of correlation. Yeah, and in the 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 movie Noah that came out a few years ago, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, a long time ago. In the movie, you know, I remember going to see this with a couple of friends of mine, and they're just like, you know, they they're they're not Christian, you know, they're. Uh, Think of the atheist bent. It's just like, well, that's just a bunch of crap, you know. How could a, right, how right. could a, the, like the the the, 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 the there were forty days and forty nights of great flood never happened. I'm like, you guys watch this movie this whole entire time, and that's all you've gotten from it. Like, it's like that was not your conventional biblical movie, okay? Tell you know, if you know, all into Kabbalah and shit like that. So anyway, in the in the film, uh, Methuselah is his grand is Noah's grandfather. He goes to see Methuselah to see what he can do. And Methuselah has got this little like bowl and he's making this little paste and Noah ingests it and he starts to uh, have this vision where God essentially tells him through images to to build the ark and i thought to myself well this is this is some interesting stuff here <laughs> this is not this is not your usual uh, conventional biblical film yeah uh so the, you know these ideas are out there um, yes and i i think that there could be some truth to it now where it kind of stretches a little bit for me and i'd actually run into this before uh was where he talks about i believe this is in the chapter about flyagaric and he's talking about the mushrooms and uh, Christianity. And you know where I'm going with this? I'm trying to Which, find Which, I mean, uh, there's a lot. The, the cross itself? Yeah, or? the Christian connection. Okay, so th- this was, th- this is, and I've heard this before, because this is in a book um, by the same authors of the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, where they talk about John Allegro. Okay. Um, so... If the Holy Grail was indeed an allusion to the Amanita Muscaria mushroom, then why the traditional association of the Grail with Jesus and the early Christian religion? Inner archaeologist John M. Allegro. Allegro was one of the scholars responsible for translating the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, but his claim to infamy was a curious little book titled The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. In it, Allegro argued per etymological indicators that the early Christian religion was nothing short of a fertility and mushroom cult, and that Jesus, who likely did not exist, was either a symbolic representat- representative of the mushroom itself or of its resultant effects. I mean, it's an interesting idea, but, you know, the whole Jesus didn't exist thing, this is not 
I mean, even if you don't believe, even if you're not Christian, you don't believe in, you know, the, the typical Christian belief of, of, of Jesus. There's a lot of people will say, well, you know, Jesus was a historical person. Right. So, you know, I have kind of a problem with that. But it's... But I mean, think, I think his point... Interesting idea. His point in the book, too, is just to find everything, and then you just have this massive... Look how, look how much right. there is. You know, there has to be something in this whole mass of possible connections. Right. Right. Exactly. So I I I was pretty impressed by this book. Was yeah, it, this was it's pretty far out. Man. It, I'm glad we both got one. Is there anything else that you uh that like stood out to you in this book? Um, just the, I mean, it's it's not really vague. It's there's three particular plants, and yeah. he goes through all you know all, all the the possible usages of these three and the symbolism of these three so it's like you know there's there's a lot more than it's not just you know mushrooms or dmt um or ergot so we're basically we're talking about you know these uh three different kinds of psychedelics which are all different also so they would produce dis- different results but have a lot of the same uh, same characteristics and same states produced and he also mentions soma too, which I believe that he right. That's and there's the a lot. That, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of speculation that the Indian soma, the Indo-Aryan soma, is was flygark. And he also goes into psilocybin at the end of the book, which that's a little bit more, I think, speculative. And he admits that because yeah. there's no real way to really to really tell it. But he also uh, gives an alternate explanation of the philosopher's stone as psilocybin. Mm-hmm. as well yeah I'd, I'd really recommend this book if you're into if you're into some of these topics it's it's fascinating yeah absolutely okay um uh, i think that's it i think that's a good place to to leave it um i i, I do want to say just like you know, one thing i meant to say this in the last show but we were we uh, kind of ran out of time but um the this is not reflect on the guests that we just had on or anything but we we've talked about this amongst ourselves and the just you know we'll have people on that have different points of view on different subjects right and it doesn't necessarily mean that we embrace those points of view right because we're not really trying to have a we're trying to have more of a forum than a debate yeah and, and and I don't know that like you know I, I I don't know if I've if I have said it before I possibly have said it before on the show, but it it, it I think that should go without saying because sometimes I feel like people say you know well, why did you not say anything here or there uh, yeah. why didn't you right like you know there's been a couple of topics topics that have come up on the show and people are gonna you know people are gonna disagree with those topics or maybe it's something that somebody says. And just like you know, that's that's not necessarily us and what we believe, <laughs> right? And we're not really trying to have too many arguments, and we kind of yes. go with the you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater thing too. Also, and if you cannot buy a free exchange of ideas, if you can't get anything you know out of someone you may disagree with, you're doing yourself a disservice. Is the way I feel. Yeah, uh, I just want to you know, I just want to make that. I just kind of want to make that abundantly clear. But, you know, uh, I, I don't want to have to put uh, every show like NPR does, you know. Or argue with every guest. Or argue with every guest. Find things to yeah. disagree with. Or... Because 
if we argued with every guest, we wouldn't have a show. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I mean, truly, I mean, truly, we would not have a show. We would spend, we would spend time arguing, and everybody gets enough of that on Facebook. You know, you can argue on Facebook all you want, but or Twitter or wherever you, whatever social media forum that you that you argue on, but the it, the the point is, is like we would not have a show if we argued with the guests and there's other ways that you can challenge people but you can do it we have challenged in a nice way yeah but i think a lot of times um we just want to keep it moving right exactly because you know like like you know tonight we didn't have a lot of time with pd we only had we didn't have like the the normal kind of like hour 15 hour and 30 minutes you know so it's like you know there's nothing he said that was objectionable no but like you know we just kind of get keep 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 it moving, keep it going. Now, if somebody, you know, says something really awful, I mean, that might be a whole like, oh, hold on a second. But I've I've done shows in the past where somebody has said something really awful, and then I've had to do another show. If I feel like you know, consciously feel like that, that, that there's really something wrong that that person said, then yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of damage control we will. Well, and do. we also do reserve the right to edit our own show if it's like uh-huh. so terrible you know if yep. it's it really hasn't happened too much but if something's just like mm-hmm. so terrible you know we can we can cut it out I mean but uh, we really haven't had to do that too much Mm-mm. no we haven't so alright um, tell everybody where they can find our good old Patreon sign up for for as little as a dollar folks you'll for get as little uh, as a dollar Everything that's on there, not that we've put anything on there in, in a little bit, but uh, we will get to that. If you would like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal or conspiranormal.com for a one-time donation. That's right. Okay, guys, join us next time. We're going to be talking about some Bigfoot conspiracies. And uh, that's always interesting. Our little hairy, furry friend in the woods. <laughs> He's got something to tell us. Hopefully we'll get some juicy scatological details. Uh, Yeah, well, not, yeah, hopefully. Some of that stuff you really don't want to hear, trust me. All right, guys, um, thanks very much for listening to Conspiranormal. Snowdale Killer. who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call click or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done